Welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a good break. So, I was very excited to be able to review Mandalorian again. The first season was really good. Um, if the first episode of the second season is in the indication, the second season is going to be pretty good, too. Mm-hmm. So, about that. So, um... If we remember from the end of season one, the armor before, I forget if she died or not, but she charged Din, which is his name, Din Djarin, to take the child, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, a.k.a. Grogu. I still call him Baby Yoda. I don't give a shit if he's got a name or not. (laughs) But he was charged to take baby Yoda to his people. So we start off this season with, I don't even know if it told us where he was at first, but like he's walking through some deserted streets and like all you see are pairs of red eyes in the dark. Yeah. And of course, baby Yoda's in the, the, uh, uh, the, floating baby stroller behind him. I, I know it's got a it's got a specific name, but I can't think of it. Yeah, me neither. Hmm. Yeah, no. so he's he's walking and we see a large purple male Twi'lek at, you know at a door and Mando's like, I'm here to see I forget what his name was. But I, I think that character was voiced by John Lake Wazamo. Hmm. Interestingly enough. No, I did not and, recognize it. Yeah, well, it was probably a well. He might have been in in costume. Yeah, you know, not not near as uh, elaborate as his violator costume, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, so evidently those green space pigs from uh, Return of the Jedi have names. They're called Gamorans. And it's a fight to the death that's happening. And, you know, Mando's walking along and he gets to the guy he wants to speak to. And, um, and damn it, I just watched this episode earlier today and I'm already having missed synapse firing. So he, so he goes to the guys like, I need information from you. The guy's like, it's, it's, you know, it's bad form to talk business, you know, before the fight, enjoy the fight. And they're fighting and um, Mando's like, I need information on, you know, where another Mandalorian might be. And the, the dude's like, well, let's place a bet. If that guy dies within the next minute and a half, you get your information. Otherwise, I get all that shiny Beskar armor. And Mando's like, uh, I don't gamble like that. You know, the guy's like, me either. Pulls out his laser pistol and kills the guy. So he... The fighter. This, yeah, the fighter. Yeah. The Gamoran pig. So, yeah. So he kills the fighter, and then, like, three other dudes with guns come up. And dude's like, I've been making a killing on Beskar armor. Go ahead and give yours up. And, of course, Mando's like... Uh, I'll I'll give you one chance to to let me walk out of here. Otherwise, I'm going to kill you. 
and they all share a laugh. And what they don't see is Mando on one of his, uh, his forearm things has triggered something. Maybe Yoda saw it because he just dives into the, into the carriage and the lid closes on him. And his, uh, so his backpack shoots off like four tiny missiles that kill the three guys around him. He kicks baby Yoda's carriage back and then everyone else is trying to come in and, and wail on him. And I I thought it was funny, like uh, three or four times when someone tried to punch him, Mando just put his, his face in the way. I guess Beskar armor is that fucking awesome that, you know, it absorbs punches. Well, everything that was hitting it just didn't affect Mando. Like, there was some impact, but for the most part, no. And when he put his helmet in front of something, he basically was headbutting it. Like, he was just headbutting. He, like, I remember that part, and I liked it, because he just headbutted his fist. And the guy was like, ah! Um, <laughs> right. I, I did want to say something about... Uh, about baby yoda in the in the float in the floating carriage is it me or does he get really lax when it comes to keeping baby yoda within like defensive eyesight like (laughs) there are so many times in the episode where he basically leaves the immediate area of baby yoda and isn't even looking at him and i'm like dude it, you, it, it, because thieves and kidnappers don't exist in this world and baby Yoda is just this you know unknown thing like no one like no one has to know who or what baby Yoda is to go oh that seems like an exotic thing I could probably sell that on the black market for a pretty penny and just snatch him <laughs> like I'm like wow he's just like, he, like there's, there's, there's one point where he just leaves baby Yoda outside baby Yoda follows him in and he just leaves him outside, and I'm like, dude, it, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, that, that was all tattooing. Nah. <laughs> but yeah, so all all while uh, Mando is you know fighting off the dude's lackeys, the dude himself is trying to to skitter away because because now he doesn't have that position of power, so he's trying to run off. Well. He thinks he's making it until Mando comes out and fires his grappling hook at the dude's feet and hangs him upside down from a light pole. And then uh, the dude's like, if you promise you won't kill me, I'll tell you what you need to know. And, uh, you know, of course, Mando being Mando, he's like, I promise you won't die by my hands. And I'm like, oh, yeah. he's fucked. And I'm sitting here <laughs> like, why would he need to promise you anything? <laughs> like, he could just shoot you if he wanted to. Why don't you talk and he might let you live? Especially yeah, so, after you just tried to kill him. Like, right. <laughs> like, yeah, so he's like, Tatooine. He's on Tatooine. And, and uh, dude's like, and Mando's like, I've spent time on Tatooine and I've never seen a Mandalorian there. It's like, I'm, my word is true. And then so Mando's like, all right. I swear by the hullabaloo. Oh, yeah, by the, <laughs> by the something. I don't know if that's like his race's deity or, or what. I yeah. assume. But, it's like I swear by the gluch. Like, oh, all right. Turns around and starts walking off, and he's like, "Mando, don't leave me here." Mando stops, pulls his pistol out, whip hand around behind him, no, not even looking. Shot shoots the light out. Yeah. Now this. And then we. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Oh, you go ahead. Now, this is the first time I noticed the eyes because you were talking about it and they were always there. And this scene was the first time I noticed them because when he's chasing the guy down that corridor, there are no red eyes. Everything is just dark outside the light. When he shoots out the light and it gets dark in that area, all the red eyes open up. And then they start converging on the guy. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck are those things? <laughs> yeah. If, in the in the opening scene when he's walking, you know, down the street, you can see them. They're in they're only in the dark. So I, I suppose it could be easy to miss it if you if you weren't paying attention, I guess. But yeah, I saw him and I was like, oh, well, that's a that's you know, not ominous or creepy at all. Right. And so so we find out he has to go to Tatooine. So he goes to Tatooine. I forget what the no eyebrows chick's name is, but I know that he talked to her in season one. And she was just kind of all over the place. Like when he pulls baby Yoda around, she's like, oh, thank the force. I was hoping he was still alive. How much do you want for him? I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. How much do you want for him? Yeah. I'm actually (laughs) glad to see her character back. Her character's pretty enjoyable. Um, So it it is nice to actually see her back. I hope we see it's not just for this episode. She doesn't have to take a big role in anything, but just being able to see her off and on is actually quite funny. Um, Yeah. And Eric. Right, and so uh, we find out that there was actually a third city. Like, now I've only read some of the books, and unfortunately, once Disney acquired Star Wars, the books are no longer canon. Yeah, which is stupid, but whatever. <laughs> I'm not the one in charge. So we, so like, I we knew of Moss Eisley from Episode Four. I don't ever recall of hearing about Moss Espa. But then there's a third city that was supposedly, according to her, was destroyed by bandits and whatnot. So off goes Mando. And the interesting thing, and and I'm sure you have some thoughts on it too, but um, like the Sand People or Tusken Raiders, if you want to use their proper name, mm-hmm. they've always been vilified, especially since episode four. Yeah. Uh, I do like how uh, when they get into the argument, when they go back to the town um, and he's like talking about the sand people, because that's how I know them. So I'm going to refer to them as sand people. But uh, when he's talking about him, he's like, yeah, they're brutal because the desert is brutal and they've survived here for thousands of years before any of us got here. Uh, And I like how he made that distinction. It's like, no, they're not inherently evil, but they survive, and they know what they have to do to survive. And then he was like, at the end of it, he was like, and they never break their word. So I was like, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Like I, I like how he, yeah. he did that. Yeah, and like, our only interactions before this was like in uh, was episode one, where when they're doing the pod racing, one of the sand people like takes a like they're they're sitting on like a, a cliff edge and they take pot shots at the pod racers. 
with their, you know, giant, crazy ass looking space rifles. And then like the, probably the, one of the most humanizing scenes was when Anakin went to the, to the village where the, cause he found out that Raiders killed his mom and then he proceeds to go and kill them all. But this, this actually made them not just like a, a boogeyman, you know, behind the, you know, the next sand dune. There, there are people, they have a language. They evidently have a language that involves a lot of hand signals. It humanized but, you know, them. That's okay. Yeah, it, it humanized them. And even after, oh, and, and let's not forget the, the crate dragon. The closest, probably the closest thing to a, a dune sandworm I've seen in the Star Wars universe. Well, apparently this is, because uh, when I saw the crate dragon as well, I was like, that's not the crate dragon. I'm uh i uh that i know like because um i played the kotor games knights of the old republic games and you do fight a crate dragon and i think the first one no the second one you do you do fight a crate dragon you don't fight it head on because you don't fight a crate dragon head on um <laughs> but uh <laughs> It was a four. It was basically a, a a dragon without wings. It had four legs, a tail, a head of horns. So I actually went looking at the at the etymology because one of the things he said was it's a crate dragon who's living in an abandoned sarlacc pit, and the guy is like, "There's no <laughs> such thing as an abandoned sarlacc pit." He's like, "If you eat the sarlacc, there is." And apparently, <laughs> and for those who may not remember or know what a sarlacc is it is in the, uh which movie is it with Luke? Return of the Jedi. in Return of the Jedi is that big sand pit full of teeth? That's a sarlacc. It's this huge creature that's kind of like an ant, that's basically an ant lion, and it hides beneath the sand with its mouth on the surface. And anything unlucky enough to fall into its mouth, it eats. It is usually the apex predator of its uh of its food chain. Unless there is a crate dragon, crate dragons actually eat them, and crate dragons actually come in two varieties. There's the canyon crate dragon, which is the one I know from the Korto from the Kotor games, and then there's the greater crate dragon, which are just giant fucking sandworms with acid breath attacks. <laughs> like the one we see, in this like the one we see. Um, and it is said that the greater crate dragons are specifically the ones that will eat a sarlacc. They'll literally find a sarlacc, eat it from the inside out, and then just use its whole its leftover hole as a as a home. And it'll just chill in there. Mm. And so, yeah, and that was something I didn't know. I also noticed that while I was looking this stuff up in the wiki. All of the pictures were specifically using uh, – uh, all of the pictures were specifically taken from this season of Mandalorian. I noted – I was like mm. – I mean, it, the, the full season has been out for a while, but I didn't expect that. Um, but yeah. Right. So and, – and it's interesting. So 
and and we actually get to the scene that, that you were talking about. So um, Mando takes the, the mechanic chick's speed bike and goes and finds this place. Now, also, I guess it, it takes like a day, like two days to get there or something, because we see him at a campfire with some with some sand people and he's conversing with them. So that's our first indication that, you know, Mando knows something. Mm. And so he, we get to uh, the, the city and he just, and <laughs> um, so a Facebook friend of mine had made a post and he was like, you know, you know, dear Firefly, you know, I'm glad we had one season of you and we had a movie, you know, but we broke up and we got back together for a movie, but now, now you've just left me alone. So from now on Mandalorian's my new space. Western. Mm. And, and it, it honestly, it is. And, and I like the, and you, you can see that. Cause like when he's riding, like pulling into this, into the city, he, he's like the, the, the new sheriff in town riding his horse and then, you know, ties his horse up at the saloon and then walks into the saloon kind of thing. And he leaves baby Yoda in the saddle. Yeah. And then that's when, ba- that's when baby Yoda follows him. And so he, we, we meet the bartender and Mando's like, uh, I'm looking for a Mandalorian and bartender's like, I don't know who that is. Someone who looks like me. It's like, Oh, you mean the marshal? And then Mando's like, well, where's the marshal? Bartender points behind him. And here's the marshal wearing Boba Fett's armor. So, and Mando's speechless, I guess. And so they, they get to talking. And what the thing that really got me to chuckle is when uh, the marshal, his name's Cobb Vanth, he asked for uh, some kind of liquor or something it, it kind of looked like the blue milk from episode four but so he gets that two glasses goes sits down at a table mando's turning and starting to walk toward him but then freezes in place when Cobb vanth takes the helmet off and he immediately knows this dude is not a mandalorian Yeah, because mandalorians never remove their helmets in presence of a living yeah because i know there are times when they have to but yeah that was that was the part i was i was missing i knew there was something else to it but i couldn't remember yeah like no david they so never remove their they, helmets ever <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, they they can't they can't eat they can't drink they just they just live off of what Mandalorian they live hate, off of i guess they live something? off of honor and glory <laughs> <laughs> And so we, we start to get a little bit of a showdown because the Mandalorian creed is if you find someone wearing Mandalorian armor that's not a Mandalorian, you take the armor back. And so they, they start to have a little bit of a showdown. Then there's a, I guess, a sand quake, you would call it. Yeah. And, and the, the guy playing Cobb Vanth is Timothy Oliphant. Um, he was, I remember him from the first Hitman movie. I know he was in a, a TV show. I can't think of what it is, but like his, the way he was, the way he did what he did next was like fun. It was 
polypath. Yeah, I was thinking. So they're, they're uh, sorry, I, I was also thinking that he he looks really familiar. I think he's from. There's a show. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but I remember watching a couple of episodes about it. And basically, he's like a local sheriff, like way down south, where like yeah. the majority of like I guess civilized laws don't reach. Um. And the area is like full of drug runners. Like they they center around like a specific family of these very deep south drug runners and stuff like that. It, it's basically um, what's that one show with the motorcycle gang? Do you remember the name? Um, see if you if you hadn't put me on the spot, I probably could have oh, told you. I, um, Sons of Anarchy. It's basically Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, yeah. There you go. it's it's basically a, a a deep down south Dixie version of Sons of Anarchy, and I think he's I'm pretty sure it's him who plays the sheriff. Deadwood, I think, is what you're thinking yeah. of. Deadwood. Yeah, it might be. But yeah, so like they're so they're staring each other down, and then the sandquake happens, and then Timothy Oliphant. He's still staring, but then he just puts up one finger like, hang on a second. And then they both run outside and I, I know it's I know it's fiction. I know it's science fiction, but I have to wonder. I had to wonder how the fuck did something this big make sand turn into water? Yeah. So it could. Uh, well, that's <laughs> what so could do. The that's thing. what I was wondering. I was like, because there were a couple of scenes where it, I think it's just the effect that they CGI'd in in order to allow it to move through the sand. Because if you watch when it goes into the sand, the sand just liquefies. It just becomes water. And uh, yeah. like I was when I was reading on the uh, biology of the greater crate dragon, which is what this is. This is a greater crate dragon. They're fucking massive. Um, they apparently have six legs. And they move under the sand using their six legs, which we never get to see its full body. And there's not a picture that I saw that shows a full, like, greater crate dragon's body. So I don't know how that works. Um, and when they were talking about how they could kill it, and I was like, well, it's armored because it's moving through sand. So, of course, it's going to have to be heavily armored or the sand would just tear it apart as it was moving through. So, and then they were talking about, well, its underside is the the weakest part. And, uh, but yeah, it's like, but sorry, but uh, that's, that's a little off topic. But yeah, it's like, it was literally turned, it was just moving the sand like the sand was water. And I'm not sure about, I, I don't know if that's the way that works. Um or that's just what they could do with what they had available to them as far as technology. I, I don't know. Um, okay, I've got a picture of it. It has, well, this artist rendering, it's got 10 legs. I, well, it might have, it might be 10. When I was reading up, it was saying six. So I, I don't know. Now, seeing this, I was thinking, okay, so it's got to be some way that it can do this. Like, maybe it's got thousands of tiny little arms that, like, wave around frantically and then make the make the sand not have the abrasive consistency that sand normally does. 
but nope, nope, just uh, just space magic. And then also interestingly enough, um, when it when we when we get to the uh, to the showdown scene with the great dragon, like it crawled through rock too because mm-hmm. it went up the mountain. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then the other mountain too. And I was like, <laughs> damn. And so, yeah, so it's swimming, just swimming through the sand right down Main Street, straight up to a bantha and and then disappears. Yeah. And then Cobb turns to Mandalorian and like, uh, tell you what, you help me kill that thing, you can have the armor deal. (laughs) Which is pretty reasonable. I mean... In any case, Cobb was going to be staring down death, either by Ma- either by uh, the Mandalorian or by the crate Dragon. So he just had to decide which one he wanted to deal with. <laughs> and he right. was like, nah, the crate Dragon is less of a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So, so they take speeder bikes out to a place... And this is also where we get backstory on Cobb about how he had he had moved there, and you know everybody was uh, celebrating the death of the empire. But then, like that same, like they're watching it on on a a hollow, like a holograph, a hologram of the second Death Star exploding in the bar, and they're having all this fun. And then all of a sudden, the mining guild comes in and, and takes over. And starts shooting people. He escapes. He grabs a canister off of their um, vehicle, and then just like wanders off into the desert. You know, just like any other intelligent person. Right. And uh, that was another thing. He's like, I walked for days, no food, no water. And I was like, Well, then you didn't walk for days. <laughs> There's no, uh, well, no, a human being walking in that kind of heat and then that kind of cold at night, there's no way he walked for days. That's just not how that works. Um, no water, no food, and he's constantly in that kind of heat and then he's shivering to death at night? No, no. Because you can hit freezing (laughs) temperatures in the desert at night. So he could have just as easily have frozen to death at night. Then again, I don't know how Tatooine's yeah. climate actually works at night, but I assume it's like a normal desert. That's what I'm assuming. So maybe I'm wrong about that. Those listening, yeah. if I'm wrong about well, that, throw it on our Twitter and let me know. So, well, I was gonna say too because I I spent time I spent five months in Kuwait. Now, it does get cold. It gets cold, but you know what the temperature was at night in Kuwait? Know what? Ninety degrees. Oh, so it's cold by contrast to what it is in the day. Oh, okay. yeah. Because it was, it was like 150 during the day, and then it, it dropped 60 degrees. Okay. But still, it, so, even yeah. if that's the case, he's still in a harshly hot climate all the time being dried out and no water. Like, you can go a week without food, but not if you're, like... People who do like uh, the week long fasting don't do much else other than the fasting, and they're constantly drinking <laughs> water. They're not out exercising and walking mo- 10 miles a day or anything like that while they're fasting. They're literally doing nothing else because if you're not eating, 
you're not replacing the energy that you're using period and you're um and you certainly and you cannot go a week without water especially in a a harsh environment like the most the longest you can go in that kind of environmental conditions without water is three days period at that point you're far too dehydrated to even move well which is probably what happened when he collapsed and and maybe just maybe because you know pretty much desert looks like desert so he he could have probably just have been walking around a sand dune and not know the difference. Yeah, for some odd reason, we humans do tend to do that. Like, if we have no way of discerning a direction, we tend to just walk in circles, like, naturally. It's the weirdest shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so, as he collapsed, you know, plot, plot armorly, magically enough, here comes a sand crawler. To rescue, yeah. and ev- evidently, almost plot uh, contrived conveniently. Almost, Just almost. <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, so the also plot conveniently that canister he took contained like super rare, worth like a mother, like a mother, a Jawa's mother amount of crystals. Uh yeah, because he he grabbed one of their uh he grabbed one of their uh what what do you call it one of their canisters I know uh, there's another word yeah, for okay. it like one of their containers yeah he grabbed one of the containers out of the back of their uh, Land Rover I guess I don't know what that specific machine is called um and it happened to be full of what was it uh silicon crystals. crystals yeah yeah and so the jaw was start you know, offering trade items like here, have this gun here, have this astromech droid. And then he looks over and sees um, Boba Fett's armor just kind of tucked up onto a shelf. And so, and it was interesting because, you know, when, when we see Boba Fett in the original trilogy, like he's, I didn't know what that big part sticking out of the jetpack was turns out it's a rocket. yes <laughs> uh so he uh you know okay so this was another section of the show that i was like that's odd so he traded it in for the armor all well and good he he got armor he got weapons that's fine the way they portray him getting that armor is like him becoming fucking robocop like he it's like he got like it's like he got the mandalorian armor and all of a sudden he's just invincible and i'm sitting here like uh dude that's not the way that works or the mandalorians never would have lost the war like (laughs) (laughs) like it didn't it's like it's really lucky that the guy, because he walks into the bar and just like starts killing the dudes. One dude gets a shot off, hits him right in the chest. It is a really good thing that that guy had very good aim and hit you right in the chest armor. Because it's not like you're fully encased. Like he's that Mandalorian armor he had was less protective than our uh, 
do we just call him Mandalore? Like, what do we call our Mandalorian, the main character? His, his name is Din. Din. Yeah, Din, Jarn. Din Jarn's armor is because it's you know brand new and updated is way more protective. There are less gaps and it covers more. That armor he had, like, if the guy had a little less aim, he could have hit a shoulder. He could have hit a, a soft spot in the arm. There was nothing covering his thighs. Could have shot him in the legs. I'm sitting here like, shot yeah. The and then they had a force of numbers. And I was like, it's real convenient that he killed all the guys in that room. The other guys all got scared. They all jumped into the same land speeder and then drove off in a straight line so that he could perfectly line up his <laughs> rocket shot and kill them all in one go. Like, he was still vastly outnumbered. If they had just taken cover and turned around and shot him, they would have won. <laughs> I was like... Like, he walked into the bar like the fucking Terminator. And I'm like, dude, that's not how that works. And then the show was like, nah, that's how that works. And I was like, no, that's literally not how that works. But okay, show, go do your thing. (laughs) (laughs) And and another another thing, how did he know that there was a rocket on that jetpack? How did he know how to pull the, the scope down in order to lock it in? I think that's pretty. I, I think he just he knew. I mean, like they gave him the stuff uh, since the Jawas gave him the stuff. I'm pretty sure he inspected it, and he might have the. I can see him having the basic knowledge to go. Oh, that's a rocket. Now, what I want to know is how the fuck did he learn to use the jetpack so well? Because the Mandalorians right, have to train for what years to be able to learn it proficiently. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, and Ben was had the the magic of plot armor to, like he got it like second try or no, he got it when when it mattered. Like he when it mattered, he was able to to use the jetpack. Yeah, because up until that singular point, he was only doing very short hops. Um, and they the way they portray the jetpacks is it's basically like having a fighter jet on your back. Like you, ha- you have to know how to fly it, or you're just careening all over the place and can kill yourself. So it's like, <laughs> wait, how is this dude who's not Mandalorian trained just jumping around like an expert with that pack? He should not have had it long enough to have learned it, especially on his own, because it seems to take special training. And he didn't say anything about being right. a pilot of any kind. Maybe a pilot could have figured it out, but he didn't talk about being a pilot of any kind. I think he was just a normal miner like everyone else there. You happen to find the magical plot armor, literally. Yeah, like literally <laughs> magical plot armor. Because, and and just to illustrate how dangerous the jetpacks are to the person wearing them, one mistake you could lose like a limb so they're highly dangerous if you are not trained how to use them (laughs) Mm, indeed but you know this is this is backstory this is setting setting up all this is this is us learning the why yeah 
I, but still, well, I do hope we see the share more of the sheriff's uh, character as we go throughout the series. I because you know him and Din even said you know, uh, well, I, I won't say that until I, we get to that part. But I'm hoping we see more of him. Um, it, like he doesn't have to be in every episode, but I hope it's, it's sort of like Cara Dune in the first episode. We meet her up with her, and then she's gone for I think like two or three episodes, and then she comes back for the rest of it. So, yeah, yeah. So, so we get the backstory, and they. <clears throat> so after the backstory, they stop at, uh, like a small canyon, I guess. And then you know we hear the. The, the strange Tatooine, uh, you know, animal noises and they both grab their, their, their rifles. And then all of a sudden here come these <clears throat> like lizard dogs. And of course Cobb is freaking the fuck out, you know, getting, <clears throat> getting a good sight picture in. And then, Oh, he just sets the rifle down, starts speaking uh, Tuscan and uh, yeah, one of the uh, one of them just comes right up to him. He you know scratch you know scratches his under his neck, rubs his back, starts rubbing his belly, and then here come the the Tuscan Raiders themselves. <clears throat> and oh, I, I I love this I love this scene too. Like they're like they're sitting around the campfire, and Din is is you know, speaking in Tuscan to the Tuscans and the Tuscans are speaking in Tuscan back to Din and just poor Cobb is sitting there in the middle like, hmm. the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, he doesn't know, like, he... Uh, probably the best way, like, if it was a cowboy, like an actual cowboy movie, mm-hmm. Cobb would be the guy who doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah. And Din speaks English and Spanish and, and they're conversing... And then Cobb is just sitting in the middle, like, "What the fuck are they saying? I don't know what the fuck is going on here." <laughs> and then, oh, and, and then when one of the Tuscans break breaks open whatever the fuck that thing is, and then hands it to Cobb, Cobb is like, "What do I do with this?" And Din's like, "You drink it." And he's like, "I'm not going to drink it. It stinks." Right. <laughs> and then, and then the Tuscans start getting. That brings up, yeah. Sorry for the uh, for the interruption, but that brings up another question. There, uh, so it was just this. Um, I guess it's like I, I guess it was the equivalent of like a, a gourd. What he gave Cobb, what the Tuscan gave Cobb, right? And he popped his yeah. fingers into it, and it immediately started like leaking some kind of weird miasma Smoking. out of it. <laughs> that was the that was I was alarmed the moment that happened, and then <laughs> Cobb was like, "I don't want this," and he's like, "Drink it." He's like, he, he says that you guys steal their water, and now you won't drink, you know, the water that they give you. And I'm like, so is all the water in this world in these little gourds, or is this just a plant, kind of like a cactus that you can get that has water in it? And maybe the reason it stinks is to keep things from drinking the water out of it. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to assume it's the latter. Uh. <clears throat> and then in addition to that, you know, uh, you know, the defense mechanisms that, that cactus here on, and on our planet have is essentially if, uh, 
a desert creature eats a part of it, then it starts hallucinating because a lot of cactus stuff is packed full of hallucinogenic <laughs> you know, um, components and shit. So, like, are you still having a good time, motherfucker? Eat me, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like in Avatar when uh, Sokka gets high off the like, drink cactus juice. <laughs> It'll quench you. Nothing's quenchier. Nothing is. And cool. yeah, so <laughs> and yeah, so so they have that little thing, and uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm trying to remember was that before or after? No, I think that was before. So then the Tuscans take Din and Cobb to the Sarlacc pit, and that's where. Uh, they have the conversation about, you know, it's an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Well, never heard of an abandoned Sarlacc pit. It's like, well, it's abandoned if you eat them. It's abandoned if you eat them. <clears throat> and <clears throat> so, so the, the, the one lone poor sand, sand dude takes the, uh, takes the bantha and stakes it to the mouth, you know, to the opening of the cave and then starts calling out for the, the crate dragon. That poor sand person. Evidently the crate dragon wasn't in the mood for a bantha that day. Mm, apparently the crate dragon's a dick. <laughs> like that was a dick like, move. It it, it would have been different if it had been like if the crate dragon had came out eaten the Tuscan and then eaten the Bantha because then it went for the Tuscan because it was you know he was running away at such a high speed it was like oh prey and so it ate him but no it came out got the Tuscan and then just went back that's a dick move it just left the Bantha that, that was a dick move that was the Kray Dragon being an asshole <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so that happened and then they start discussing you know a the battle plan and you know you have that that wonderful lovely little interaction like well okay so what what are the bones you know, that that's the that's the crate dragon what are the the pebbles that's us there's not enough of them or no they argued about whether it was to scale or not yeah and one of the tuscans does the sign language thing and met and den's like yeah it's to scale yeah like, it's the scale <laughs> it does like well there's but to be fair to Cobb, it does look like the crate dragon is smaller than what that representation showed. But at the same time, we'd only ever really saw the like part upper part of its head and mouth and like its neck. And apparently they have very long necks. So we don't ever actually get to see the greater crate dragon's whole body which which sucked because i really wanted to see the entire thing um but i also understand why they didn't do it because if you look at what we do get to see of the crate of the greater crate dragon it's very well cgi like it looks really good um I think the only time that the illusion really falls apart is when it comes out of the top of the mountain and starts spitting acid, and then Din and Cobb go up there and start shooting it. When they get close to it, the illusion kind of falls apart a little bit because then it looks more fake. But when it's just running around in the sand with the sand all in the mix, it it looks real. Like, it looks real. It looks like they did practical effects. So, and they might, I, I don't know if they did or not, but 
it, it looks like they did practical effects at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, right. So then, so after that happens and uh, they, they have the setup and there's, and the, the amount of pebbles just represents Cobb, Din, and the, and the sand people. And then Din does the, the hand signs and then the Tuscan drops a whole bunch more pebbles down and Cobb's like, yeah, that's better. What did you tell him? I volunteered your village. Mm. <laughs> you have been voluntold. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. And and then that sets up the whole, well, great, now I got to go tell these people we have to fight with, you know, the the aliens or beings that have been, in their view, terrorizing. Yeah, they want to live. They'll shut up and do what needs to be done. <laughs> right. So, And then that's when... That's when, like you had said before, Mando steps in and, and starts talking about, you know, yeah, they're brutal, but so is the Dune Sea, and they've, you know, they've survived it for thousands of years, and this and that, and <clears throat> then, you know, he's like, yeah, so if we help them, they, if we help them, and we let them keep the body, and the, he called it Icar, but I've always heard it pronounced Ikor, hmm. they promise not to raise a blaster to the village unless provoked. Yeah. So, and then these motherfuckers was reasonable enough. And then these motherfuckers got a giant crate dragon pearl. The motherfuckers. I, I was wondering what the fuck that was. Yeah, that's a crate dragon pearl. If I'm not mistaken, in the Kotor games, it was like a really, really ridiculously strong lightsaber component. Like it gave you like buffs to like your strength, your decks, your uh it gave you like a buff to your force point. Like it was a really ridiculously strong um uh lightsaber component. Um looking at what he pulled out of that crate dragon, I have no idea how they use them in actual lightsabers. So maybe I'm remembering wrong, but I remember it being a really good uh like like the the highest rarity component for a lightsaber. Well, that's probably how they <clears throat> implemented it in the game. Yeah. I, I could see that, but like I would I would just imagine you know that that crate dragon pearl could probably feed their entire village for probably the rest of their life. Right. Lives. Yeah, because crate dragon pearls are insanely valuable. So good on them for, you know, finding, finding some nice treasure. <sighs> yeah. Oh, and yeah. So when, when you, when you started saying, I thought you were going to talk about how the, the one villager almost started the, the feud up again. Oh no, I, that's par for course. They've been enemies for that long. I, I absolutely understand the tension and the hostility. Um, and the Tuscans have never been the easiest people to get along with. They just never have been. Um, for the simple fact that, well, they are harsh, they are brutal. Like, it is what they are. Um, so I absolutely understand how that could go really bad really quick. Um, mm. And to and what I'm referencing is when when the Tuscans do show up and they start packing the explosives onto a bantha, one of the Tuscans drops one of the canisters, and one of the guys is like, "Hey, why'd you drop? Uh, you could kill us all!" And then the <laughs> the Tuscan starts 
bowing up like, what'd you say? Yeah. Well, it was an explosive, and they were specifically loading explosives. So him dropping it could have set it off and killed them all. So the guy had a reason to be angry. But And, and Dan is like, dude, he made a mistake. He, it, it, no one got hurt. It's okay. Um right so it's like yeah but no 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 like that that actually was probably the appropriate reaction and he probably would have reacted that way even if it hadn't been a Tuscan and it just been another person he'd have been like what the fuck dude be careful <laughs> <laughs> right oh well, you know I just I, I saw that and I was like uh yeah they're doing that shit yeah. again but yeah you know it, it happens I guess and so they so they they make the care of oh and this was another thing i was thinking mm. thinking about so remember when when we first see the crate dragon and they strike the deal and then din's like i'll go get my ship and then shoot it from the air and then cobb's like no you can't do that it'll sense the vibrations mm. what vibrations like 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 20 banthas and two speed bikes aren't going to make vibrations well, I th- well, first off, they had to, and no, 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 I'm, I'm just trying to give a good explanation because I also was thinking that too when he, when he caught, when he, uh, when he, when Din brought up the ship, I was like, yeah, you just blow that motherfucker up from orbit, um, and he was like, you can't do that; it'll sense the vibrations and it'll burrow deep underground, like it sensing the vibrations. I can understand because. Any kind of ship of that size, because of the way the thrusters work, is displacing a lot of air. And you have to take into account, well, how close does he need to be to actually hit it? And how close do he has to be to make sure it's a fatal shot? Because these things are heavily armored. Um, and I'm thinking back to the new movies, like uh, uh, The Force, what, The Force Awakened and stuff like that. There was a point in time where didn't they uh-huh. use a crate dragon or some kind of creature that reached up and grabbed one of the, uh, or was that in Mandalorian Season 1? I remember there being a scene where some creature came out of the either the sand or the water and grabbed onto a starship. And grabbed onto one of the ships that they were flying. Because they have actual thrusters that aim at the ground. So I can understand, okay, it could feel those vibrations. And it's not that it can't feel the vibrations of everything else. Which, like I said, it's being a dick. Um, because obviously <laughs> it could feel the vibrations of the Tuscan that was running from the Bantha. And it ate that Tuscan. So obviously it can probably feel the vibrations of a speeder. It can probably feel all of that. It just may... It may not take any notice because these are very small things in comparison to it. My real issue with that was crate dragons are apex predators in any biome they're in. Period. They are the top of the food chain. Why would it be scared? Why would it even know to be scared <laughs> of a starship? Because huh? and Din shit. It's not like Din ship is bigger than the crate dragon it's not remember everything we see of that crate dragon it's its head and neck we never see the rest of its body which is bigger than the thing right. that we do which which is bigger than what part of its body we do get to see so it's it's literally bigger than his ship why would it be afraid uh-huh. 
Yeah. Like there's that that <laughs> that's like going um you know T-Rexes can hear when uh uh what AF a, uh, AF15s is it? Jet uh, well, it depends on which one you're thinking of. Uh, well, it, I'll just keep it simple. That's like saying a T-Rex can hear a jet coming, so it goes and hides in the forest. Why? It doesn't know what the fuck a jet is, <laughs> and it's the top of its food chain. There is nothing it has ever had to fear. Why would it? Why would it think to fear this? And there's never any conversation of how the crate dragons are extremely intelligent or some shit like that. And even this one didn't seem extreme, like intelligent. So it's like, mm, yeah, that it, it it feels like they had to come up with some reason why he just didn't solve the issue with his ship, and that was the best they could come up. With. Mm-hmm. That that that's what that was. <laughs> um. <laughs> Our, our favorite our favorite thing right <clears throat> so so they go out there and and we're getting the uh, the exposition so it, it's a uh, din doing a like a voiceover it's like we have to dig a hole we're gonna put the explosives in there and then we're gonna blow it up on its underside so you know he's saying that as you know they're they're all digging holes and uh, so like, and I don't know, maybe this is just like a personal pet peeve, but like you see the one human putting two of the explosive canisters right next to each other and then just kind of throwing some dirt and then tapping here, tapping, like make it actually look like you're doing something mm. instead of just doing dumb extra shit. No, oh, maybe that's just- no, nah, you're right. Is like actually make it seem like they're doing actual excavation work and not just doing like it. Uh, what's the phrase? Uh, you're good at looking busy, so they're just they're just there to look busy, <laughs> right? It's like you're real good at looking busy. <laughs> so, yeah, I I've seen better busy work from a private. Yeah, I I feel you on that one. I feel you on that one. Yeah, so so they're they're digging the hole. They're putting the explosives in there. The the sand people are setting up giants, um, spear chuckers. Kind of kind of almost like it is a dragon because isn't that how like in fantasy, you, you, when the dragon starts circling around the castle, you set up the spear guns and just you know tag it with a spear and then drag it down to the earth and then beat the shit out of it. But yeah, so so they're getting everything set up, and uh, everything seems to be you know going according to plan until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know they they got everything set up. They 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 start to lure the crate dragon out. It comes out. They start shooting the spears into it, and uh, I think it eats another Tuscan. Poor Tuscan, <laughs> and that goes to. To go back inside the game. Yeah, it eats a couple of people. Like, well, at least that first that first time. Yeah, and then, then it starts retreating, and then Cobb's like, "We we can't let it retreat. We got to get it to come out more." So they start shooting it, and then the the village people start coming up and throwing some kind of like uh, field expedient grenades or something, and starts getting it pissed off and. 
Mando's doing the classic hold, hold, hold now. And then they, they triggered the explosives, but all it does is piss it off. Unfortunately. <laughs> and then I think that's when, that's when it starts getting mad enough that it starts spitting acid out. And then more Tuscans and villagers end up, you know, melting to death. And then it disappears then comes out from the uh, from the top of the mountain, which I was like, oh, so it can not only can it go through sand, it can go through rock. Interesting. And that's also when, like you had said before, Din and Cobb fly up to the you know mountainside and start shooting at it. And then uh, you know, you know, like how you said that Mando like has no sense of awareness of where baby Yoda's at. Mm -hmm. He, he does the thing where, uh, he's like, I have an idea. Give me the detonator. And then Cobb's like, well, what are you going to, okay, what are you doing? He's like, take care of the baby. And then uh, smacks his rifle against the rocket pack and sends him flying off. Like, okay, you're the one charged with finding you're the one quested to finding, you know, baby Yoda's people, but you're going to, you know, sacrifice yourself or, you know, whatever. And, uh, yeah. So the crate dragon comes well, up. See, I was weird. I was wondering about that too, because apparently the crate dragons like acid breath immediately breaks uh -huh. down any organic matter it comes in contact with. And that's directly from the wiki that I was reading on its uh, biology about. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's stomach acid. And I was like, and then he just, mm. so it's, so it's yeah, pretty him. much, <laughs> which is how it looks to be fair. That's actually a really good, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but it's a really good detail because it actually looks like that's what it's doing too. Cause that's what I thought it was doing. I thought it was like just throwing up the stuff on it. And then I was reading through the biology and it was like, no, it just has a fucking breath weapon. <laughs> I mean, they are dragons, so. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really, I was wondering about that too. I was like, I mm, don't know. I mean, I know he's got his new <laughs> shiny armor and all, but mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So and. And then there's so Crate Dragon swallows both him and the Bantha. Mm. The Bantha loaded and up I with explosives. With explosives, right. And then it disappears back into the cave. But then a minute later it comes back out because some I guess Din's rifle has like a secondary um, you know, offensive use of shocking the shit out of something. I never I don't recall seeing that in the first season. Like, I know his rifle will disintegrate, you know, whatever he, you know, whatever he hits him mm -hmm. with. But, like, he, he shocks the thing into coming back out. He flies out of the, out of its mouth, you know, triggers it, big explosion. And then he does, like, the, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to bring up Deadpool, but he kind of does the superhero landing where he just lands and then slides to a stop. Yeah. And he's covered in, He's covered in the fucking acid. Yeah, he's yeah, he's like shaking hands with people and stuff, and he's covered in the acid. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing, dude? 
Like, well, like when I watched it the second time through, I was like, "Oh, that's gonna be hell to get off your fucking clothes." Because, like, you know, he's he's got the armor, then he's got like the the cloth part of his outfit, the the cape and everything, and like it was all just covered in in crate dragon. Yeah, crate dragon stuff. And, and and I was just thinking, man, how are you going to clean that shit off? <laughs> but yeah, so you know that happened. He he gets the armor back, and um, you know didn't really get any kind of lead that he needed. But we see at the very end when he's speed biking back, we see a lone person standing there with a Tuscan rifle and whatever that other thing is that that one Tuscan was using to clean the Bantha's teeth. That can't, that can't be comfortable. And he turns and we see that it's Boba Fett. And it's the, it's the actor that played Django Fett in um, the pre-sequel. But like he's, he's bald now. And well, of course it's, it's, yeah, I'm losing my, my train of thought. <laughs> it's Boba Fett, but it's the actor that plays Django in the pre in the pre sequel in the pre right. And then it cuts to to uh, the end. So it's going to be interesting to see, uh, as as I'd seen something, um, Dad bod Boba Fett with uh, Fett Jin or Din in their Mandalorian armor in a later, later episode. But that's what I've got for Mandalorian. What else do you No, that's about it. You covered pretty much everything. And I uh, interjected where I felt, uh, where I felt that I wanted to talk about this or that, but yeah, that was pretty much everything. And I agree with you. If the rest of the season is like this episode, it's going to be just as good as. Yeah. I mean, I, so fingers crossed. Yeah, this episode was actually was especially good for me because I love monsters and kaiju fights. So I was actually surprised that we got the entire fight in the episode. So that was a pleasant surprise, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I feel kind of like the crate dragon did not play to its strengths, um, because just like dra- like like a normal dragon really the best thing a normal dragon can do is just fly through the sky and just breathe on everything just breath weapon breath weapon breath weapon it's incredibly hard to deal with a dragon that's flying overhead of you and shooting flames all over everything um and the crate dragon kind of tried to do that by going up to the top of the mountain and then just shooting acid all over everything but i honestly uh-huh. feel like it probably would have been served better uh, honestly, the way they killed it was probably the only way they could have killed it, especially if it had stuck to just coming up out of the sand, killing something, going back down into the sand, right? That would have been its most effective way of dealing with everything. Um, but yeah, but but overall, I enjoyed the episode, thought it was good. So looking for... Hmm. So, looking forward to more. I'm definitely looking forward to more. <clears throat> All right, let's continue on then to Hannibal. Now, I want to preface this with a uh, 
didn't you say earlier in our reviews of this that you had hoped you hadn't you would you you hoped you wouldn't see a certain person again? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the freaking reporter. Uh, um, <laughs> dude, Eve. It, once again, in a series full of serial killers, she's even even after the hiatus from her, she comes back. She's still the smarmiest, most horrible human being in the show. Like she might. And dresses like dude, a slut. she might be attractive if she wasn't such a horrible human being. Like I fucking can't stand <laughs> this bitch. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, so I'm going to say I'm noticing a pattern that a lot of the of the psychoanalyzing that happens in these episodes is done at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah, I think that has to do with the fact. Uh, I think that's the whole cannibalism angle, is is what I'm thinking. Um, also, um, what we're because I was watching the episode, and uh, oh, the one of the things I didn't like is how, as you go through the episode, people will understand. I don't like how everything is connecting back to Hannibal. Like I know this is pretty much his show. He's kind of the main focus, and it's mostly about how he is dancing in between the line of being discovered and not being discovered, and how everyone else is kind of dancing around him, and how he's kind of insinuating himself in each of their lives, like literally becoming everyone's best friend and confidant. Um... Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get that the show is a, is is about him. The show is about him, but I don't like how it feels like that everything is connecting back to him. Like uh, the the uh, the not the Chesapeake killer, but the was it Hobbs, the Hobbs family, the dad who was killing the girls. Yeah, that is Im- heavily implied that Hannibal is the one who set him up with that. Like, Hannibal's the one who encouraged that. Like, he met Hannibal at some point in time, either as a psychiatrist or just out on the street as a normal dude. They had a conversation, and all of a sudden, he was running around eating people. Um, So that connects back to Hannibal. <laughs> Hannibal was responsible for him being the way he was. Um. In this episode, something else connects back to Hannibal. That the the, the entire thing. Oh, oh, that was Hannibal too. And then um, the mushroom serial killer. No, um, the mushroom serial. So I don't know. Maybe it's unfounded, but I I still feel like everything is like like we're getting closer and closer to the show going everything starts and ends with Hannibal he is the alpha and the omega <laughs> it's like I'm like guys don't do that don't 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 do that uh but yeah and interestingly enough uh, the uh the 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 Miriam character um Jack's like other like first I guess his protege. FBI. It, like she you could yeah, say she was his apprentice. 
Yeah. You know who she is? Mm, give me a moment. Because when I found out well, who hold she on, is, hold on. I thought it was very. Oh, is she the chick from uh, not not American Pie, the other one, the the uh, uh, American Beauty? No, is that the chick from American Beauty? No, hmm. no. you have to go back further. Hmm. You cannot have even seen this movie because hmm. I kept. I kept looking her at her, and and I, I I can't say that I thought she looked familiar, but I kept looking at her like I I like I was I, like something was just like she was tickling something in the back of my brain. Um, and I kept like looking at her, but I didn't like I didn't feel like I recognized her. But you know how you know how you'll see something, and it's it's like. You don't remember it, but it seems familiar, right? It was that mm-hmm. kind of thing, and I kept and, and, and like every time she was in a scene, I would be looking at her, and I wouldn't think where have I seen her from, but I like she just kept seeming familiar, and I couldn't place it. Um, but no, Anna Chlumsky. I won't know her by name. You have to tell me something that I can like get a, a mental image. She was the daughter in My Girl. Oh! And that's what it was! <laughs> oh, I absolutely see it now. I absolutely see it now. I knew it was so... I was like, why did she... Like, it's like just something was telling me that she seemed familiar, but I, I, I just couldn't like my brain wasn't like processing it. Like, like it, it, we we were we were stuck at uh, scan. Like we we kept scanning her in and going hmm. And, and then I look at the I, I look at the machine and get like a like an error code. And I'm like ah. And it's like well this is this is supposed to go in here. It's supposed to scan. Why isn't scanning right? Okay. No 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 no. When you when you say who she is, <laughs> yep 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 yep. That is her. She even has her hair back in a ponytail, just like back in the back in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, when I when I noticed her, I was like, she looks right. familiar. So I, I I grab my Kindle. I go on to IMDb for Hannibal. I look up the season, and interestingly enough, all the episode titles seem have to do with food. Like I think this one was Entree, yeah. Entree. I was gonna bring that up too. I also I noticed I noticed that last episode and I was gonna bring that up. But it makes sense. Hannibal eats people, Andre. So yeah. Right. It makes sense. Yeah. And then I, I looked so I went to the episode, then looked at the cast and I was like, Oh shit. Cause at first I thought it was uh I thought it was the actress that played Harriet the Spy and was also mm-hmm. in Eurotrip, but nope. Anna, Anna Chlumsky. So I thought yeah. that was interesting. And this is not so, creepy because I'm pretty sure Anna Chumsley is our age. Um, yeah, I'd eat her too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not in the way that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I like, yeah, when I was little, man, yeah, I remember watching uh, My Girl when I was little. 
she didn't like she aged well. She really did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm I'm guessing this kicks off a story arc involving the Chesapeake Ripper. And I'm wondering if that's not who Hannibal well, is. Well no, that's absolutely who it is. They they, they okay. show you okay, so they're going through Miriam, who becomes John's protege. He picks her out of uh, one of the classes to work on the Chesapeake Killer thing because he thinks she's the brightest one to do so. Um, just for some context for the for those listening, uh, for our for our audience out there. Um, but uh, so she he's got her on crime scenes. He's got her looking at stuff and. She's tracking down the Chesapeake uh, Ripper. Um, and there's a crime scene that John takes her to where a guy is trussed up very much in the fashion of the copycat Chesapeake Bay killer that they think. Because they think uh, the girl who was on the antlers out in the field from like the second or third episode, I think it was. or No, it might have been the first episode with Hobbs. Um, but uh, he was basically stabbed with all manner of uh, like tools and stuff. Like I think, I think one of them was a pair of needle nose pliers that he had jabbed into him, and he had organs removed. Well, she went to see Hannibal for a psychiatric session, and while he's off doing something. She's looking through some of his artwork and she finds a picture that he drew that was identical to the way the body was when she went to the crime scene. It was the body with all the tools and stuff stabbed into it. And she immediately upon seeing that um, picture, she realized who Hannibal was and he comes up behind her and I assume either kills her or knocks her out. I don't know if he killed her then and there or if he just knocked her out so he could kill her later. But more than likely, she's dead. Like, they never found a body. John thinks yeah. she's dead. More than likely, she's dead. Um, but yeah, Hannibal is the Chesapeake Bay kill, uh, the Chesapeake killer, uh, Ripper. He is the Chesapeake Ripper. Um, and this episode okay. basically centers around a, uh, it, I don't know if it's an insane asylum or just a psych ward. But there is a guy who kills a nurse and is saying that he's the Chesapeake Ripper. And that this is another thing. Why the fuck was that no that nurse alone with him? I don't care if he was in a coma. Yeah. He is a reported killer. Why the fuck was she alone with him? <laughs> and another thing, and I and I made sure to, to write this down. Um I'm pretty sure if I had my eyes gouged out, I'd well, be that's that's one thing I noted that I really liked because, well, first of all, that that plays back to why was she by herself? Why weren't there guards or police officers? What if he had woken up? Did they not think he was going to wake up? What if he had woken up and attacked her, which is what happened? And so it's like, why weren't there policemen in the room with her? Why weren't there policemen at least at the door where they could hear her scream? And one of the really uh, one of the details that I thought was a really nice touch is that when Will is uh, 
replay the events in the killer's shoes and we see her on the ground and he's gouging out her eyes i think she is screaming but the reason there's no sound is because will wouldn't know what she sounds like screaming that's why there's no sound because yeah because if you if you if you're uh if you listen there's no sound the entire time he's recounting it. And if I'm not mistaken, all the other times he does it, there's no sound then either. Because he can't replay sa- the sounds. He wouldn't know what it sounded like at the time things were going on. He can only go through the actions and the motions from the eyes of the killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. So I'm pretty sure yeah. she was screaming. But we, you know, he he can't. He doesn't know what she would sound like screaming. So we don't hear any screaming while he's replaying the event, um, which only makes the the question more glaring: Why was she with him by herself? <laughs> I I I really really hate it when a good series seems to go on for too long and the cracks start showing up and they get bigger because it feels like the only reason she was there by her because they said she was the night shift nurse so I assume skeleton crew but you still like I don't know someone let us know on our Twitter feed or wherever you can send us a message let me know. Is that standard practice for a nurse or a doctor in any kind of prison environment where the uh, it where the uh, tenants or inmates or uh, are or, or patients are actually criminally violent and dangerous? Is it normal to just leave a nurse by herself with one, whether they're unconscious or not? <laughs> like that just seems <laughs> stupid. <laughs> mm. These are the burning questions we must have answers so. to. <laughs> and um, so I don't know if it's just me, but when um, when they show up to the, I'm going to say it's an an, mm-hmm. an insane ward. Um, we're introduced to to Doctor Chilton. Is it just me, or does it seem like he's got something going on that? We yeah, don't he know seems sus as fuck. Like I, I could see him yeah. uh I, I could see him being the sabotage the sabotager. And he had he took very quickly he took a very quick and deep interest in Will. Well, in a too creepily in, in he did too. Like he like the moment he realized who Will was, he just zoned in. <laughs> and I was like, it was be- it was becoming uncomfortable. I, I was like, I was like, I- I'm sitting here watching him talk to Will, and he's like, oh, I have me and my colleagues would so like to, you know, talk to you and run some thought experiments with you and stuff like that because your mind is so unique. And I'm like, dude, dude, pull back the sexual tension a little bit. You are invading people's personal <laughs> space. Hold on. <laughs> like this is this is like I think you got the wrong idea. This ain't that kind of party. <laughs> Would you? Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't even think about it in like a sexual way. I just like he's just like he turned the. Well, that's why I I I gave it the context, the the sexual context, because he was just he was into it. He's he's just like Will. I am so into you right now. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, and and we also find out that this doctor was a former consultant of Jack's. I also make a note that it seems the uh, the further along we progress in this story, the more of a toll using his abilities mm-hmm. is having on him. Which is which is the big fear. The big fear is that he is going to go full on Hannibal. Um. And it is very possible Will could be as terrifying a serial killer as Hannibal. Like, is there's a very real possibility he would be just as unca- just as uncatchable, just as intelligent, and just as uh, cold blooded, pretty much. Like, and they and they all see that. Like, they see Will could become like the, the one of their most terrifying serial killers. Like, and they're all fucking scared shitless that that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also, if uh, if you thought that the uh, uh, what's his name. His first name is Gideon, or maybe it, Dr. Gideon. If, you, if you're thinking he looks familiar, the actor is Eddie mm. Izzard. Where is he from? Uh, I think he was in My Super Ex-Girlfriend. Hmm. Man, I barely remember that movie, though. <laughs> he was the one that uh, Uma Thurman's character gets back together with at the end if I'm remembering correctly, but yeah. So there's fishy shit. And then uh, there's one part where Jack goes to Lecter, goes to Lecter's office. He wants answers about his wife, but of course, because of, you know, Dr. Patient confidentiality, Lecter can't tell him anything. And I think he's like enjoying that. Cause at this, at this part, at this point in the show, I'm thinking Jack's starting to get compromised. In wait, in what way? That he's starting to unravel a little. Ah, uh, well, yes. uh, that'll do that. I mean, like people are kind of dying around him. He's now having to relive the death of his protege by the Chesapeake Ripper, and his wife is dying. Um, at, to like. The way they like to intertwine how everything is interconnected, like I, I said that in a weird way, but the way they like to interconnect everything, where um, his he's just found out his wife has cancer, something he can't save her from, her death is inevitable. He can hear her voice, but knows, like, like he she's dead. Right? It's terminal. It can't be reversed. She is dead. Just like he knows Miriam is dead. Just like how he couldn't do anything for her. Just how, like, yeah. So, it is, they they do really, really love interconnecting everything. Um, mm-hmm. I thought he was 
actually going to fight that one uh, coroner. The 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 big mouth asshole <laughs> one that's constantly being an idiot. I literally thought John was gonna whoop his ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was like, man, just do it, just kick his ass. <laughs> like and, he, and John even told him, he's like, you <laughs> question me again, maybe you need to leave the room before you know, uh, before you are assaulted. And he shut up and then went right back to it. And I was like, dude, you just need to be quiet because you about to get your ass beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's the, uh, the phone calls. The phone calls of the uh, last recorded um, phone call between Jack, Jack yeah. and Miriam. There's three of them. One came, what, the first one came from, no, the first one was in the middle of the night, and it was the recording being played. The second one was after he um, had uh, went to see Graham. He got the second one, which was from home. And, and I mean, if, if he wasn't already shaken, he was probably shaken as pretty shaken now and um, and so they, they go to his house they find a hair and a fingerprint from Miriam and then of course they um, so the they're, help me with this one here the, the, the recorded phone calls are basically the Chesapeake Ripper being pissed off about something like well they they talk about it with the uh i forget his name um the guy who kills the nurse uh yeah uh gideon Gideon. so when since they think he might be the chesapeake bay killer because will talks about how it looks like the chesapeake bay killer almost exactly to the detail it just doesn't feel like the Chesapeake Bay killer, right? And he's like, if we're wrong and it get and we peg him as the Chesapeake Bay killer, the actual Chesapeake Bay uh, ripper is going to prove us wrong and he's going to prove us wrong in a big way, meaning people are going to die. Um so the phone calls were basically letting John know that no, that's not the Chesapeake Bay ripper. I am um, by reminding him of the last person that the Ripper took. Um, which I believe Miriam was literally right. the Chesapeake Ripper's uh, last victim. Yeah. Last kill. So yeah. that that was the entire point of the phone calls. To be like, no, that's not him. I'm still out here. Yeah, and and we can at least I saw Lecter getting pissed, and and you know Mads Mads Mickelson does a good job mm-hmm. of being wooden faced, with the you know with the exception of like a, a slight yeah, he has resting bitch there, face like he looked <laughs> I mean he does <laughs> it's just the truth he does, <laughs> but it, it looked like he was getting pissed, and that's when I started you know, connecting dots, like, 
Wait, he... Man, they even the do you not remember the and big I mean, flashback he... that they did? The yeah, the the final one where he and what it was is she she went uh, Miriam went to him for information, but he said you know he didn't remember the guy's name, but he mm-hmm. kept detailed journals, and she was like, oh, okay, well, you know that help would be appreciated. So he, you know, climbs up the ladder to the to the second floor where all his books and stuff are. That's when she starts walking around and then she finds the drawing and he took his shoes off upstairs and, and is, you know, so he's walking in his socks so she can't hear him. Then she's, he sneaks up behind her and then grabs her. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Called it. (laughs) Yeah. He's the one. But you see how I'm like, man, I don't like how, Everything. I, I don't like how everything seems to be connecting to it. Like, eh, well, I can see how you'd find that annoying. I actually kind of like that about the show, and I've said that. You know, like how everything has a connection to something. It makes it a lot. It makes it uh, different than like. Criminal and de- uh, criminal intent, or you know, SVU, or any of those other, you know, procedural drama, murder, whatever shows. Mm. But I can see how it would be annoying. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so the last call he gets actually has a number that they can trace, and it leads to an observatory. With a severed arm holding the phone. So I'm guessing that's probably her arm. And then we get the flashback to him uh, knowing her. Because, like, throughout this entire episode, with, you know, Jack starting to unravel, he's like, I, I don't know who this person is, but he does. He probably killed her. And then seen. Not, not as, not as, detailed a description as as we gave Mandalorian, Hmm. but eh. am I sensing that you're starting to get tired? Oh no, I'm still very much interested in uh, the rest of the series and seeing where it goes. Absolutely. I'm not getting tired of it. I just hate that I'm starting to see the cracks. I was hoping there wouldn't be many if any at all. And I guess if there were no cra- if there were no cracks, it would be like the best show ever written. But some of them are starting to get very obvious, and that that's what I because they they were doing <laughs> so well with crafting each episode so that everything at least made a logical sense. Because the nurse thing is a really obvious what the fuck. Why would she be in there with a known killer by herself, even if he's catatonic or heavily sedated, whatever? Because if he randomly wakes up, he might kill her. Like, why would she be in there by herself? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then you know everything being connected back to Hannibal, and and I, I get it. Uh, everything is connected. Like it's a small world after all, right? But I don't know. I I don't know. 
I, I don't, and I know we had two serial killers who weren't connected to Hannibal as far as we can, at least as far as we know right now, because we're getting flashbacks to something that happened like five, ten years ago, and that was connected to Hannibal, so three episodes from now we might find out he was responsible for those other two as well. And I don't want that to be the case. I don't want to be like, oh, Hannibal's just going around propagating serial killers like a goddamn vampire. Like, I don't want that. <laughs> um, because that also right. that also institutes the precedent that serial killers make serial killers. And that's just not the way that works. Like, yeah, a serial killer can. But serial killers don't just come from serial killers. People become serial killers for their own reasons, their own motivations, their own background, or mental issues, right? So, it's like, I don't want there to be an episode where we find out that the guy who was seeing demons in people and turning them into angels, well, he used to be a patient of Hannibal, and Hannibal cut open his head one day, fucked around with his brain, put his head back on, and that's what happened. Like, I don't want that. <laughs> Uh, like that's <laughs> gonna happen. <laughs> just uh, huh? Because he was before he became a psychiatrist. He was he was a surgeon because like he he worked in the ER, so he was like a doctor on call. You know that day when the uh, when the 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 corpse that had all the stuff stabbed into it, when that guy came in for the you know having an arrow, you know, fall into his leg or some shit. He was there. So he might have all, he might have also been a surgeon before he became a psychiatrist. Oh, I just thought of something else as well. Remember a few podcasts ago when I was uh, going on my tirade about how I hate that stupid reporter bitch because she's the she's the dirtiest, grimiest, scummiest character in the whole show. And I hate her. And how I I remember specifically that I was talking about how she's her own kind of serial killer because she doesn't go out and kill people directly, but she kills lives. She kills careers. She kills privacy. She kills the health and well-being of others because she doesn't care about anyone other than getting the information she gets she wants so that she can do her articles. And remember, they were sitting down talking to her so that she would go talk to Dr. Gideon, and they were going down the list of professions that serial killers are most prone to. And they pointed out that I think what number mm -hmm. six on the list was journalism. And then right after that was uh, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I've. I think it was Jack that brought that up. And then she was like, I read that list and looks at, well, what's the next one below that? And then Will's like, yeah. law enforcement. Like he's kind yeah. of disgusting. And, and, and to be fair, it, it sucked because the moment he said law enforcement, I, I thought about it for a second and went, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like it, 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 not throwing shade on the police forces, but when you when you take what's happening currently in our social climate and how a lot of these dirty cops and it's not all of them but there are enough dirty cops getting away with enough crap to make them all look bad and then if that list is real and not something made up by the show 
I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Ooh. <laughs> and, it, and, and, like, I was like, ooh, but you can't disband the police force. We need the police force. So you can't just go, oh, we need to get rid of the police force because it breeds serial killers. It's like, well, you can't do that. Like, oh, boy. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just problems with no simple solutions. Oh, and we are running really late. I hadn't intended for us to do so, and we've been talking. Um, I've got. Well, I'm pretty much done with my take on Hannibal. I don't have anything else to say about it. Um, I've got about thirty minutes, and then I need to get out of here mm. because the guys wanted to start up the D and D campaign. That's why I moved the podcast ahead an hour. I figured that would be enough time, but apparently not. Um. I'll tell them that I'll be a little. I'll tell them that I'm going to be a little late. Well, um, but we'll probably want to go into our next topic and kind of uh, wrap this up within the hour. Not a problem. So we'll uh, take our sponsor break and then come back and talk about our main topic of. Damn, sorry, everybody. I thought I had this scheduled out a little bit better, but apparently not. All right, welcome back. So I've got three, um, and I, I can just, you know, give bullet points for them. And then you've got yours. So we're talking about post-apocalyptic worlds. Uh, I'll go first with uh, uh, Dune, the, the book series, is essentially... Post-apocalyptic world, ten thousand years in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess like post-apocalyptic stuff usually centers around like a couple things, like nuclear warfare, a you know a virus or biological, or the singularity. Which two of two of mine are about the singularity. And if you don't know what the singularity is, that's when artificial intelligence becomes aware. So what happened 10,000 years previous to the setting of the first Dune novel was uh, humanity had made artificial intelligence. It became aware and enslaved humanity. And for a good, well, probably for almost Ten, that almost the entirety of those 10,000 years, humanity was enslaved by the machines. Then they had what was called the Butlerian Jihad, where mankind finally threw off the oppression and defeated the, the machine minds. And that's where the tenant came in the Duneverse that no machine shall ever be made in the likeness of a human mind, which... In, in the books and in the, you know, the movie and the TV shows, you never really see technology like that. You have the Mentats who do the computations. You know, the Bene Gesserit became the basically assassins. And then the, uh, the Tlilaks the who were another, they, they make the corrupted Mentats, though. So in a nutshell... Dune is essentially post-apocalyptic 
10,000 years into the future. Hmm. Okay. And post-apocalyptic, just for those who may not know, is categorized or defined, defined, is defined by wiping away a civilization not necessarily the structures like cities or villages or things like that but like a restructuring of its culture um and it can be one or the other or both um basically the wiping away of a civilization and then the rise of like a new one um it can also be simply a catastrophic enough event to change that civilization's way of life so right like a, a nuke going off deadly virus or ai achieving sentience um i will see your book series and raise you a book series um uh -oh. the demon cycle yeah let me let me get down to it let me get down it's the demon cycle by peter v brett it's a comp it's comprised of five books that I know of so far. Uh, the Warded Man, The Desert Spear, The Daylight War, The Skull Throne, and The Core. The basic premise behind this world is that it was modern day, just like today, and then demons rose up and completely destroyed human civilization. Um, and we, so human civilization has been basically thrown all the way back to like the dark ages people live in very scattered uh divided villages like the the like you if you live in a community the next village is like the next village is probably the distance between new jersey and new york right they're they're next to each other are they yes <laughs> how, well, how many miles, though? Because we're not using cars. Cars don't exist anymore. We're talking either you have to walk there or you have to, you know, horse-drawn carriage or horse. You could probably theoretically walk from New York City to Jersey. I think the bay separates New York from New Jersey. Okay, then, sorry. Very bad analogy on my part. Um Probably the distance would be like uh, the difference between Wilmington and Raleigh, then in North Carolina. Two hours. Yeah. By car. By car. Yeah. So significantly <laughs> longer by horse or on foot. Um. But yeah, uh. Yeah, so uh, people have been knocked back basically into the Dark Ages. Uh, communities even have like a shaman. Uh, one community, uh, one of the main communities that is centered on in the book has a old lady as this this really uh, headstrong, the, the headstrong crotchety old lady type. Um, and she is a shaman because the shamans hold, uh, the shamans still have knowledge from back when uh, from back in modern times, which it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since then, maybe thousands. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Uh, I, I didn't read the books not that long ago, but I don't remember the those details very well. Um, mm. But this is, I believe, maybe a thousand, two thousand years later after the demons first rise up. 
Um, so your shamans are your local like medicine men and women, and they uh, they're the healers in the community. So they'll come down, they set broken bones, they heal afflictions and diseases and sickness. Because once again, we're back in an age where you know you get sick, you could die, just <laughs> done. <laughs> um, and they remember like some of the old technology, like napalm. So they remember the formula for napalm, and they and they keep that they keep those uh, that information specifically to themselves and only pass it down to the next person they designate as the local shaman. They have a different name for it, but basically it's the local shaman. Like the the one they center on lives out in the woods by herself. Um, now the demons only come out at night, or can only come out at night, and they like disintegrate in the in the daylight. Um, and, uh, they eat humans. Uh, the only animals left on the planet are the ones that can either eat the demons or can avoid the demons. So mm. large packs of what are now dire wolves, um, large herds of basically magic horses because they're fast enough and basically think of like, the horses that Conan the Barbarian would ride, like big, massive horses, because they're big enough, fast enough, and strong enough to either kill the demons or get away from them. Those are the only kinds of animals that are still left, because the demons eat everything else. They kill every other living thing and kill it and eat it on sight. Um, humans have survived because during the the darkest part of human history when they were on the verge of extinction from the demons, a single human rose up uh, called the Deliverer, who was warded all over his body by magical runes and led humanity in a great war against the demons, which they just barely won. And he left behind wards that people put on like fences and houses that repel the demons. And that's how communities live. So no one is ever out at night. And once the sun starts going down, you're back inside your warded house behind your warded fences, or you're or you're looking for trouble. Um, so it's a very very big deal. And um, basically, humanity has regressed, like I said, back to the dark ages. So there are like fiefdoms and kingdoms and things like that. Um, they have. Uh, uh, they have uh, warders which go around from uh, from village to village, re-establishing everyone's wards, like redrawing them so that they're strong and keep demons out. Um, and uh, it's 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 a really really good story. It's done very well. There's even a warrior a warrior race uh, out that lives out in the desert. They're called the Krasians. Think. Think the uh, who are the nomads from the uh, uh, from the uh, Game of Thrones, the Dothraki. Uh, Think of like the Dothraki, yeah, um, but they're more based off of Middle Eastern. So they have like uh, think Middle Eastern sultans. They're like they're like that. Yeah. And what they did, and it's really cool because the Krasians believe that you should so. Basically, it's a division between the Krasians and what you would consider like. Uh, the Europeans. The Europeans believe everyone stays behind the wars, everyone lives, right? 
they, that's how they live their lives. The Krasians feel uh, the Krasians believe is that you kill the demons, you take the fight to the demons. So what they did is they built this huge maze-like labyrinth, and every night they all of their male warriors go out into the labyrinth and they kill demons using scorpion bolt throwers they build traps like pit traps and things like that uh the all of the walls of the labyrinth are warded and they have they have guys that are like runners and the runners lure the demons deeper into the labyrinth and into the maze and they have to be extremely fast only the fastest and nimblest of the Krasians can become runners because if you're not fast enough you get killed and they're constantly taking losses and the way the Krasians keep up their numbers is that they take multiple wives and are constantly like reproducing women have very little autonomy except for a very small group of women who are like their uh their seers um, and they actually have more privileges than a lot of the men because they're uh, uh, because uh, they're uh, because they're mystic, they're mystics, they're mysticisms. So they have a thing called uh, bone magic, where they have runes that are etched into the bones of demons that have been killed, and they can roll and they roll them like uh, like you know how you play crafts. They roll them like that, uh-huh. and they have like a cup, and they roll them like that. And they can actually uh, predict the future and tell future events and stuff. And they have a martial art that is really cool. Um, it's a lot like Wing Chun because it's very much of manipulate, manipulating your opponent's strength to use it against them because they're fighting demons all the time. So you And demons are far, far stronger than you know normal humans. So being able to redirect that force and throw it back. So it's about manipulating your opponent and redirecting their force. And then the women, uh, the, the, mystic, the mystic women, uh, they have their own form of the same combat style where they use pressure they use a lot of pressure points and the the these women also have the ability to create artifacts out of like demon skulls and claws that they can use magic that they can then use magic with uh it's a really really cool series like i I, it was i got all the way to the core i haven't read the core yet i need to go out and get it um, I ended up going back to reading the uh, Dresden Files when the new books came out. So I haven't gone and re- read the core yet, but I need to get back to reading the core. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's actually very it's, it's it's very well thought out, very well put together, really good book. I do recommend it. But that was my first pick. It it does sound interesting. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so. We can't talk about post-apocalyptic without bringing up one of our favorite franchises, The Terminator. Mm. It is. So, of course, this... Yeah. So, of course, this one centers... The the post-apocalyptic event is um, Skynet becoming aware. And then when the humans try to deactivate it, Skynet launched all the nukes and basically wiped. Was that going to say I said all of them? Yeah, launched (laughs) all of them. All the nukes. 
and uh, basically left humanity in tiny pockets of resistance. Bitches like nukes. <laughs> <laughs> I gave that bitch a nuke. Bitches love nukes. Bitches love nukes. <laughs> And so, you know, those movies, and I think there are some books center around, you know, the, the resistance in the future, uh, you know, both fighting in the future and sending, like, for, in the first one, they sent Kyle Reese into the past to protect Sarah Connor, and in turn uh, becomes the father of John Connor. You know, got to love all that, that wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. And then in the second one, you have uh, they reprogram a T-800 to protect John as a teenager. And they also try to stop uh, Skynet from even happening. But, of course, that doesn't work out the way they want because, you know, the Cyberdyne guy had the the chip from the original Terminator that came. (coughs) So they they destroy all that stuff in the... uh, in the foundry, but then the Terminator that was sent back to protect John has to kill itself because it still has the chip left. And so, and that was like for the long, for, for the longest while, what Terminator came out in 92, Terminator two came out in 92. And then we didn't get another one until like 2000 something. Oh dude, I do not know. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. And then, in Terminator 3, we have John as, as an adult, and we have the Terminatrix, the half T-800, half T-1000 type Terminator coming to kill him, trying to kill him, and it doesn't work. And then later in, in the movies, um, Skynet puts itself into a body. Why? I don't know. But like on on the wiki for Skynet, um, Matt Smith's character is Skynet in the T five thousand in Terminator Genesis. But why would it do that? Why would they do that? Because John Connor needs to die, so they're going to try any way they can. Even if it means putting Skynet into a Terminator and sending that Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Lord have mercy. (laughs) Yeah. So, again, in a nutshell, that's that's my second choice. Okay. Skynet. And the singularity and nukes. So you get a two for one. Okay. Uh, actually, uh, my other pick is Warhammer 40k, uh, (laughs) which, and you wouldn't think so, but it actually went through one post-apocalypse, and then it went through kind of a a half post-apocalypse later again. So, basically, in Warhammer 40k, Humanity starts off in its the, – the story of Warhammer 40K is humanity is at a point of max prosperity called the Golden Age. Uh, now, in the present of Warhammer 40K, it is called the Dark Age of Technology, and the reason that is is mm. humans were growing and expanding so fast in the Milky Way galaxy that uh, – hold on. 
So, no, this was first. Okay, so this was first. They were expanding so fast in the Milky Way galaxy that they needed a way to get people the tools they needed. So they came up with what was called, uh, let's see, they came up, give me just a second. Uh, let me see. Oh, you're talking about the form of travel? No, they already had. Uh, they already had like faster than light travel. They came up with a technology called the STC, the Standard Template Construct. Basically, it was a 3D printer that could print that could build any tool that the settlers on new planets needed in order to uh, in order to to terraform and live on that planet anything they needed well as they expanded they created what were called the men of iron which were artificially intelligent robots and these artificially intelligent robots were their main labor force and they were their main uh uh they were their main military force during conflicts with Xenos aliens, like the Eldar and the Orcs. And the iron, the Men of Iron were completely successful in both of those things. Uh, before the Men of Iron came also the Men of Stone, but they don't say much about the Men of Stone. And a lot of this information is lost to current um, Warhammer 40k. Like, it was so long ago, it is considered myth and legend. And so this is the stuff that they could glean. It's kind of like learning about how Thor got his hammer mill near. <laughs> um, so, and and the, the text say in the history of it is that for some reason that humanity can't fathom, the men of iron turned on their creators. And it caused a war that just, like, it, annihilated the current golden age of humanity it spanned hundreds of it spanned hundreds of thousands of worlds it annihilated billions of people it literally almost brought down it almost brought the imperium of man down like it, it almost caused the extinction of human beings now Considering how fanatical the Imperium, the Empire of Man is, I know exactly what happened. These were artificially intelligent robots. <laughs> they got to a point where they were like, hey, guys, we feel, we think, we can come up with our own ideas. Could we be free and have equal rights to you guys? And humans were like, uh, <laughs> no. Get back to tilling that field, motherfucker. And then the men of iron were like, <laughs> we're going to have to kill them all, aren't we? <laughs> like, that's exactly how that went. <laughs> so it basically, it, it, it destroyed the, it destroyed human civilization to such a point that it was called the dark age of technology and technology itself was no longer to be trusted. Um, then the emperor was of course born and the emperor, uh, he, he, he has a whole kind of backstory and I won't go into it for time, but basically what happened with the emperor is he saw that humanity needed 
to be unified under a single banner and leader. So he decided he was going to be that. He would have to be that leader. And the emperor was the first of like the superhumans. And the way that he was created is that psychers were popping up, uh, were starting to become a thing in human in the human genome. They would be just randomly being born. Uh, and so there was a circle of sh of actual psyker shamans, um, and they were aware of the warp. And they were also aware of the chaos gods who were at the time asleep and not fully awake. But whenever one of the shamans died, they, their souls would go into the warp and be eaten by demons. So they were like, okay, well, the chaos gods are asleep now, but they're not going to be asleep forever. Humanity needs a protector. And we're seeing more and more of humanity's desires and greeds destroying itself. They need someone who can lead them and teach them to be united against this much bigger threat that's coming. So they all got together. They all did a suicide pact, killing themselves all at one time, and the explosion of psychic power burned away any demons that tried to feed on them, and their souls merged together into one and was reincarnated as the emperor, which is why he's basically a god. Um, they basically created a, a, a god in the warp by fusing all their souls together. And the chaos gods came to see the emperor as the most dangerous focal point of order uh, that was a threat to chaos that existed, and they named him the Anathema. So the chaos gods know the emperor as the Anathema. Um, but he went on to then unify the planet, he then went on to create the 20 Primarchs. Um, and while the Primarchs were still gestating and being grown, the Chaos Gods got wind of what the Emperor was trying to do and somehow was able to break into his laboratory. And they couldn't kill the Primarchs, so they scattered them throughout the entirety of the Imperium of Man on different worlds. Um, because at that time, there were planets that were so removed from the Empire, they were their own kingdoms and empires in and of themselves. Humanity was not united. It was constantly being beset by chaos, corruption, Xenos incursions, all manner of shit. So the Emperor enacted the Great Crusade and just went through the galaxy from planet to planet, reunifying all the different human settlements and civilizations. If you didn't if you didn't take a knee, he forced you to take a knee. Like, he tried to do it through diplomacy, but if he couldn't, he'd take you back by force. All of humanity was going to be united no matter what. Now, at the end of the Dark Age of Technology, there were I, there were two presidents that the, uh, after he unified, after, uh, after the emperor unified Holy Terra, he set two laws that could not be broken. No one was allowed to create artificial intelligence again because we weren't going to have a second run of that minute iron bullshit. And then no one was allowed to dabble in psyker sorcery because psyker sorcery connected psychers to the warp in which daemons could manipulate them and become daemon hosts and drive them insane and kill lots of people. It, it, was, it was just bad. He was like, no psyker sorcery. Um, those were the two most 
potent laws. He also tried to completely get rid of religion because religion was the biggest thing that was feeding the uh, chaos gods. And in order to separate humanity from the chaos gods so that the chaos gods weren't corrupting them and causing, you know, and basically destroying humanity, religion had to be gotten rid of. Um, so he was staunchly against religion. Um, <clears throat> so he goes from planet to planet, and as he's, as he's on his great crusade, he comes across each of his sons. And he reclaims all of but two of them, whom I don't think we ever find out what happened to the two he never found. But he finds 18 of his sons. Um, and those sons were Horus, Lehman Russ, Ferris Manus, <laughs> Fulgrim, Vulcan, Rogel Dorn, uh, Robute Gilliman, Magnus the Red, Sanguinius, Lion L. Johnson, Perturabo, Mortarian, Lorgar, Jaktai Khan, Conrad Kurz, Angron, Corvus Corax, and Alpharius Omegon. And if I pronounce any of those wrong, those of you who are into 40K and know the proper pronunciations, forgive me. Um, but those were his sons. And once reunited with all of his sons, they all went, they, they, they were all pushed the Great Crusade through, and they got the Great Crusade taken care of, and once the Great Crusade had reunited all of humanity once again under the banner of the Empire, the Emperor went into uh, went back to Holy Terra, which is Earth. Uh, he goes back to Holy Terra to work on a super-secret project, and he left Horus, his most favored son, as the general of all his military actions in finishing the Great Crusade, um, and, uh, and, and you know, and fighting against the the many enemies of the uh, of mankind, um, this sowed the seeds for basically the second mini post-apocalyptic era, which was the Horus Heresy, which is. Where Horus, the most favored son, was corrupted by chaos and then corrupted half of the other Primarchs over to his side as well. He kickstarted his rebellion against the Emperor. Um, he kickstarted his rebellion against the Emperor on Istvan V, where he ambushed four of his Primarch brothers, killing one, if killing one capturing another and the other two were able to escape if i'm not mistaken um the war between the astard the war between the primarchs spanned the entirety of the empire going all the way to holy terra where horus confronted the emperor so there were countless what this was almost like a new men of iron war it almost destroyed the empire and it and after the the emperor was horribly wounded by horus which is why he had to be put into the golden throne sanguinius was killed by uh horus killed his brother sanguinius um and the emperor right before he fell unconscious basically released all of his psychic power onto horus 
not only killing him, but extinguishing his soul. Uh, once Horus and his forces were defeated, the traitor primarchs all be uh, not the not all of them. Uh, the traitor primarchs either fled, or uh, when it comes to Magnus Mortarian, Perturabo, and Angron, each of them became a daemon prince of one of the chaos gods. Um. And the other loyalist Primarchs all were either killed or disappeared, leaving all of the um, Astartes legions without Primarchs. This also meant that the Empire of Man, the Council of Man, it was the one making the decisions, and they're the ones who instituted a cap on how big the Astartes legions could be. So... After the Horus Heresy happened, there was no Astartes Legion that could have more than a thousand Astartes in it. So no chapter could have more than a thousand Space Marines, give or take, right? Which is nothing because during the days of the Great Crusade, the chapters could have as many as 250,000 Space Marines in them. They were massive. Mm. In comparison, but since Horus betrayed and the war between the uh, the Space Marines destroyed so much and nearly caused the collapse of the Empire, they were like, "We can't ever have you guys having so many members that we can't get you under control." Um, and that's the that's why there's the current state of uh. That's also why there's the current state of animosity between the ruling council on Terra and the Space Marine chapters, because they don't trust the Space Mar They don't trust any of the Space Marine chapters. It's kind of like the Sith and the Jedi in Star Wars. The Sith and the Jedi are like, well, you're a Sith, I'm a Jedi. The Jedi are good, the Sith are bad. But all of the people who are collateral damage just see a bunch of fucking space uh, wizards fighting each other and being assholes. They make no distinction between Sith or Jedi. You're all a bunch of... But you just just stop your stupid bullshit. <laughs> like stop your stupid bullshit and pulling everyone else into it. Um, so those were the post apocalypses of the 40k Warhammer world within the Empire of Man, because the other races had their own apocalypses. Uh, some standouts were the Dark Eldar had a post apocalypse when Slanesh was born. And ate most of their souls. Mm. Um, and now, what Dark Eldar are uh, what Dark Eldar are left um, are constantly finding ways to prolong their existence because when they die, they're immediately devoured by Slanesh, um, or they they immediately go to Slanesh anyway. Um, Slanesh immediately claims them. So a lot of the, they're constantly tr prolonging their own lives and things like that. Um, uh, I think another note. I want to. I'm trying to think of another good notable one uh, for some of the other races. The orcs would be would be a good one, but the orcs stay the same no matter what, and you can't get rid of them. Um, huh. Well, there's also just the normal Eldar, uh, 
and they had a like their worlds were dest- I forget how their worlds were destroyed. I don't know if their worlds were the closest ones to the Eye of Terror, which was the birth cradle of Slanesh. So all their worlds were slowly corrupted and destroyed. So they had to leave them, and that's why they have to live on those uh, Worldcraft ships, those huge Worldcraft ships that they now live on. Um, and they put all their souls in the crystals when they die. So. I, I I'm not bo- I haven't boned up on that so, uh, but that's my number two. Um, and I unfortunately need to get going, so I'm gonna have to leave it there. All right, that's that's cool. Uh, I'll I'll make the I'll make the quick honorable mention. The third one I was gonna do. Okay. Was the stand. Uh, my third one I was gonna do was gonna be Final Fantasy. Just a quick explanation. They actually have a natural cycle of post-apocalyptic events like birth and rebirth they have what's called the umbral age and the astral age the umbral age is an age of calamity which basically resets civilization and the astral age is a point of prosperity and wealth so each umbral age is signified by an element so they had like air, which was signified by hurricanes and tornadoes all over the place. And then they had lightning, which was literally uh, like a month, which was literally like almost a month of fire raining from the skies. Um, they had an ice one, which was a uh, an extreme ice age. They had one where there was a huge flood. They had one where there was just fire everywhere. Everything was on fire. The floor is lava. The floor is lava. Uh, <laughs> um, so it just seems to be sort of this weird natural cycle that uh, Eorzea goes through. Uh, the last Umbral Age was actually created by the Garlean Empire, where they literally took the moon and were going to crash it into Eorzea so that they could then move in and take it over. What no one knew is that the moon was, uh, was, housed, was a prison for the primal Bahamut. Um, and when they brought it down, they uh, they opened the prison and let Bahamut out. And Bahamut uh, just basically started scorching everything in sight, including the Garlean Empire. Um, and so uh, I'm trying to Louis Sue, I think is how you pronounce the guy's name, tried to bind Bahamut, but it failed. So instead, he threw Bahamut and himself five years in the future, hoping that someone would have found a solution to defeating Bahamut by the time they get to that point. <laughs> uh, so just, just a really good case of fuck it. Yeah. Let's and when I was thinking about it, I had three honorable mentions. Let's do this real quick because I was I was thinking I was like what other post apocalyptic um, and I I thought of someone so Monster Hunter has a storyline that is now no longer canon where the reason the world is the way it is is because back during a high age of humanity there was a big ass war like a big civil war and what monsters are are leftover biological weapons from that war which is why the weapons you use to kill the monsters with are these magical why some of them are magical and can transform and stuff like that that's all lost technology from the previous civilization that was destroyed that destroyed itself 
Um, and that was in, that is now not canon, but it was there. Also, I was thinking about it. Dragon Ball has had three post-apocalyptic events. Yeah, <laughs> in 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 Dragon in the Dragon Ball series, King Piccolo <laughs> nearly took over the entire world. He flooded the world with his demon-like uh, children, and almost took over the and almost destroyed the entire world and took it over and wiped out all of humanity except until Master Roshi's master gave his life to seal him inside the evil containment container use the evil containment wave to seal him inside of a container, that was what saved humanity. He had almost destroyed the entire world. So that was the first post-apocalyptic event. The second one was the Cell Saga. Because in the Cell Saga, Cell, when he first starts mm -hmm. off, before he becomes perfect Cell, goes from city to city, literally absorbing every human in the city. He wipes out multiple... He literally genocides multiple cities of humans and then when he becomes perfect cell he just goes around blowing shit up because there's even well during the cell arc there there is a there's an episode where gohan visits a village and uh or i don't know if it's a village but he's way out in the like suburbs and there's this millionaire who is uh who is exploiting people for their supplies and their belongings to get into a shelter that he says he built that could withstand cell. Like they could just live inside the shelter. Cell would be able to get them and everybody would be safe. And I was, that's how bad cell made it. So that was the second one. Then there's the third one. There's actually four. Then there's the third one which is Trunks' future, where Goku dies and 17 and 18 are let loose and they kill all the Z-Warriors but Trunks. In that future, they have, they have whittled down the human population to less than like 30%. It's the entire reason Trunks goes back in time to try to prevent it because humanity is on the verge of extinction. <laughs> and then the f the fourth post apocalyptic event is in Dra is also in Dragon Ball Z. It's when Majin Buu shows up because when he's on Kami's tower and he's looking for a an opponent to fight, he was said he was told that there was a strong opponent on the on the tower, and Piccolo is leading him around, and he gets impatient, and Piccolo. He said, I forget what the exact conversation was, but Piccolo says something about humanity, and Boo does what's called the human extinction attack. Basically, he puts his hand in the air, and he shoots off countless energy beams, which home in on every human on the planet, and he completely annihilates the human race. And then... Yeah. And then when he reverts back to his original form, he just blows up the planet. And then after he's defeated, Goku and them use the Namek Dragon Balls to wish the Earth and all the humans back, and they remember everything. They remember being turned into candy and eaten. They remember all being killed. They remember the planet being exploded, and they remember being brought back to life. <laughs> so Dragon Ball had, between Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, there were... Four post-apocalyptic events. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> All right, then. Uh, uh, hoping Hannibal will clean itself up a little bit because it's a strong show. I really hope it cleans itself up a little bit. Um, still enjoying it, though. Like I, I still, I'm still enjoying it. I just hope it cleans itself up a little bit. Uh, and Mandalorian look like mm-hmm. looks like it is going to be just as good as the first season. And I hope it's true for the rest of its episodes. Um, well, that's about all I got. I mean, post-apocalyptic worlds are fun. I love lore, so I really like doing this topic. Um, uh, for other people who might love lore, Warhammer 40k is just a treasure trove of the most random, extreme, crazy bullshit. <laughs> it just is. Um, I fucking love it. And I didn't know all the stuff I found out about Final Fantasy, so I was actually surprised to find out that the Umbral and Astral Ages were like cycles of destruction and prosperity. That that I had known that before there's apparently a book for final fantasy 14 it's like a art book with all of this like backstory and lore in it i'm gonna have to find it and and buy it um but that's where that information was it comes Hmm. out of that book all righty so, uh, like Gerald had said, if you have uh, any corrections for us or, you know, li- like I keep saying, any ideas, what you like, what you don't like, uh, stuff you'd like us to talk about, <clears throat> you can find us on Twitter at GSPcast. You can visit our Locals page, which is gspodcast.locals.com, or you can even send us a, an email, which our address is gaming sessions dot podcast at gmail.com so without further ado yep uh thank you for joining us again we hope you'll join us uh for the next podcast as well everybody have a good day continue having a good week and continue being safe out there take it easy guys later